The following podcast is a Simpronto Media production. She's a business mogul. Number one. And wellness expert. How can I help? And now Chantel Ray and her amazing guests are here to guide you on your wellness journey. Time to level up. Welcome to the Waste Away Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to today's episode and I'm so excited to have Dr. Angela Cortal and we are talking about how intermittent fasting helps with hormonal deficiencies or excesses with premenopause, perimenopause and postmenopause. So, so excited to have you Dr. Angela, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I am a naturopathic doctor. My practice is in Oregon. And I, uh, over, over the eight years of my practice, have been uh, focusing on women's health, hormones, and as it relates to our, our physical uh, joint musculoskeletal system. So I just love uh, sharing the word on what we all can do as people with bodies and hormones to, to optimize that relationship and really uh, uh, improve our function and our health for as many years as possible. You know, I just saw a friend of mine who I hadn't seen in probably about seven months or so, and she looked amazing. Like she just looked chiseled and she looked really, really great. And so I asked her, I said, you know, what are you doing? And she said, well, I'm doing exactly what I was doing before, except for I got my hormones checked and my hormones in balance. And she's like, I got tested and my testosterone was at zero. My, my progesterone was at zero. And so she's like, it's made all the difference in the world. So let's say that someone goes to the doctor and they say, okay, let's say they just go to their regular traditional doctor. I want you to talk about what test would you say that someone needs to take? Like make sure you take, you know, cause a lot of times they don't do complete tests. Mm-hmm. Well, I would unfortunately start off by saying that someone is probably pretty lucky if they're just going to a screening or annual kind of exam and hormones even come up. I would say for a lot of us, particularly us women, things are chalked up to, oh, it's your age or the change <laughs> or something like that where, where it's just not really investigated at all. Um, I see that that very commonly blood testing is something that's first ordered uh, in, in a lot of different medical spheres. Um, estradiol is often a test that's used to check for estrogen because that's our uh, main estrogen compound. Estradiol comprises about 80% of the estrogen in our body. Um, testosterone may or may not be looked at uh, for some women who have um, PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome, sometimes estrogen, or I mean, uh, testosterone is checked a little bit more commonly for them because they, they, they can have a testosterone excess. Uh, progesterone is often entirely ignored unless a, a woman is trying to get pregnant and is uh, not able to get pregnant. So, so, so sometimes these are checked, oftentimes they're not. I find there's some big limitations with the blood testing and I guess as a as an overarching idea, the, the the limitation is that they're not very sensitive. Someone has to be really, really high or really, really low. I find often uh, for us to see a significant result of of the testing. And 
I guess the reason for that is going back to our, our physiology, just how our hormones are naturally working in our body. And that's that they're not just producing this even amount of progesterone day in and day out, hour in and hour out. It, they're really pulsatile um, for women who are still having menstrual cycles. Like that has a big implication there. So, um, so instead, the test that I see being a little bit more sensitive, giving us a little bit better information um, salivary testing and urine testing are additional options. Uh, salivary testing can be really great and easy because it's literally just spitting into a little tube and sending it off to the lab. Uh, the salivary testing checks what's called our free hormones. And so all of our hormones exist as free and protein bound states. And um, the free is just what free sounds like. It's, it's out there that that testosterone or that estrogen is just floating around in our body doing its thing. Uh, the, the, the protein bound is held in these uh, carrier proteins, like a, a bus escorting the, the hormones around. So it doesn't really have the activity. It's sort of uh, sequestered into that, that um, the, the, the protein transport. And uh, the urine testing is actually over the last, I would say, three, four, five years, I've just transitioned to do more and more of that. I find it to be the most sensitive to get the full picture of what all the hormones are doing um, in terms of the free, in terms of the, the protein bound. And then also with these panels, they're pretty expansive. So it's not just checking estradiol, it's checking estradiol and um, an E1 and E3, estradiol is known as E2. Uh, plus everything that those are getting broken down into, plus everything upstream. So with one, one hormone test, we can really put together a whole map of what someone's hormones are doing. So that if I do find, for example, you were saying with your friend, like almost no or no testosterone, which I've definitely found quite a, quite a few times, we can see, well, is that because um, how, the, how the hormones are getting broken down is preferentially more towards estrogen and that woman has too much estrogen and sacrificing the testosterone, or is it a deficiency really upstream and that everything is deficient? Mm. Okay. So let me clarify. Cause like, so like, I really know so much about thyroid because I've had so many thyroid issues. And so I just, I feel like I'm a thyroid expert at this point, just for myself. Yeah. And so I know that if I want to go get my labs tested, I'm going to not just do my TSH, my thyroid stimulating hormone. I'm also going to check my free T3, my free T4, my reverse T3, my total T3, my total T4, my T3 uptake, my thyroglobulin antibody and my thyroid peroxidase antibody. So like those are kind of like the tests that I know right off the top of my head when I, when I do a panel for myself or I suggest a panel for someone, I'm saying, this is all the tests that I'm going to take. Mm -hmm. So what I just heard you say is if someone's going to meet with you, the first thing you may say, I'll do a blood test, but sometimes the hair and saliva tests are more accurate than the blood test. Is that what I heard you say? Uh, yeah, that I would say as far as if someone's going to get the testing, it's because they really want some answers and from like blood to saliva to urine in the, with the saliva and urine testing, you're just getting, you're getting the full picture. You're getting so much more. So, so you, so let's first talk about blood for just a second. So I heard you talk about estradiol, 
We want an estrogen total. Um, you want to get a testosterone free in total, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, what yep, else? Yep. What else am I missing that that someone would want to? And progesterone, progesterone, and uh, DHEA sulfate is often used as a marker for pre um, pre hormone production. Basically, the the DHEA breaking down and into those subsequent hormones. And so, what kind of numbers would would someone want to expect? So, like, I'll give you an example of what I mean. So, what? A lot of times, if you go and get your TSH checked on your blood work, if you look at what they say the lab range should be, they would say between 0.45 and 5.5, you're normal. And so for me, I know for me, I feel the best when it's between 0.5 and 1.5, really between 0.5 and 1 for my TSH. That's when I'm feeling my best. So could you give listeners a little bit of kind of the optimal net range, not necessarily the, the range that the labs say, because that's kind of the difference between functional medicine doctors is are the range is a lot less and kind of on some of these, what you like to see. Yeah, definitely. And I would say, so it's not only a, uh, maybe, maybe a smaller range or hovering towards the lower or upper end that we find optimal, but then also matching to, um, to the picture, to, to what someone has going on. So for example, if your friend was experiencing fatigue and muscle weakness, not really able to get through a workout, um, plus the, plus the low testosterone, then, then we're, then we're seeing, uh, with the blood testing, for example, okay, maybe the total number could perhaps be fine, but the free the free percentage was w- much lower. And so, what we're really wanting to do in that case is increase the amount of free testosterone because that's going to be what's bioavailable, what can actually uh, cir- circulate in someone's body and and provide them what they need in terms of boosting up energy and and muscle strength, muscle development um, versus perhaps with progesterone. So, so there's a, a few, a few important pieces there. The timing, like I mentioned, if someone is, is still having menstrual cycles, then we need to match up. Well, when do we expect the progesterone to be in a certain range for where they are in their cycle? And usually we're checking in what's called the luteal phase, the, the second half of the cycle, uh, pretty much like the week before the next period happens, we're expecting the progesterone to be highest at that point. So if we're if, if the question is, does this woman have low progesterone, just not spiking during that time, then, then that's often where we're checking um, timing-wise. And, and then seeing if the progesterone comes back normal on the, on the blood testing, but, but we know it's in the mid or lower range and we really want it to be up in the kind of the, the top, um, top 25% of the range then then that's what we're matching up to her clinical picture along with the estrogen um maybe it's that the progesterone is on the lower end of the of the range with the estrogen on the upper end we we can call that sort of imbalance and estrogen dominance it's not that there's an extremely high or extremely low level of either of the hormones it's just that their ratio is so far off that the estrogen is really kind of taking over um, and that we want some estrogen. It's very good. We, we definitely need some of it. Uh, but when it is suppressing the progesterone, especially during that last half, the luteal phase of the cycle, 
Um, that's where we can see uh, cramps and mood changes, irregular periods, um, some or any of that that's often chalked up as like, oh, that's just premenopausal. There's often a hormonal reason behind that. And that can, that can be a frank deficiency, or that can just be that the estrogen is at the top and the progesterone is at the bottom. Yeah. So that's, that's funny that you said that because, uh, that's my doctor. I had asked him to get, take some tests and he said, you know, if you consider day one, this day that you start your period, he said that the time that we want to see your progesterone the best is day 21 on your cycle in the luteal phase, you know, to, to see how it is. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, that's, that's when we expect it to spike. So if it's moderate, low, or, or maybe the spike is happening too early or too late, then that's basically going to throw everything off for the following cycle. So do you suggest that if someone does want to take their hormones, do you say, okay, can we do it now? Let's just say, pretend they're right today, they're on day seven of their cycle. Would you be able to take it then and then also check just the progesterone on day 21? Or would you say just don't take any blood work until day 21 and let's see what what that is? Um, I would say it depends on what the priority level is for them in terms of if, if it's really menstrual, premenstrual, perimenstrual issues that we're working on. If that if that's if that's a woman's primary focus, then I would probably hold off and do everything around day twenty one um, because that's that's going to be the most impactful for us and give us the best information for where we want to um, adjust our treatment plan going forward. But if that's just one slight, you know, not really a high priority, but it would be great to get just generally long-term for maybe, maybe indirectly some other issues going on, then, then that's where we can sort of put it off and take it later. So would you say the, the biggest thing that needs to be on that 21 day is what your progesterone level is? Because the rest of them are going to stay around where they need to. But the biggest difference is if you do it on day 21, that's when you're going to see your progesterone spike. Uh, I, I um, in my practice, I'm, I'm most commonly tracking around that time frame. But there's a couple of other um, things. So for if we're checking other hormone, uh, just normal fluctuations, what we're wanting to see earlier in the cycle, sometimes that happens just in my practice. I'm not checking that as much. Um, doctors who are focusing more on fertility, maybe doing a, a blood draw on day three and another one on day 21, for example. Um, another thing that, that comes to mind is some women say, I have no idea when my period is going to happen. It could be early one month, late the next month. I don't, I have no day 21 that I can plan for. And whether that's a, a blood test or a urine test, like, you know, we, we kind of got to figure out what day we're going to be doing that. Um, so, so I would say that actual day one itself can be a little bit flexible. We can, we should be able to get a good information if it's maybe, you know, one or two days earlier or later. And then sometimes we re just really, truly don't know. Uh, a lot of my patients are in that uh, perimenopausal timeframe where the, the periods are going shorter and then they're going longer again. And so, so we, we, we 
basically just take our best stab at it and then match up to, to what happened. Uh, okay. When, when did your period happen? And did we, and did we capture that test a little earlier or a little bit later than ideal and then match up what those results are to where, where she actually was in her cycle? So I want to talk about extended fasting for just a second. And one of the things that I think is really so true, and I never knew it until probably just a couple of years ago, I wish I would have known it a little bit sooner, but the time of your, the month it is for your menstrual cycle makes such a massive difference on whether someone wants to do an extended fast. So let's say they decide, Hey, I want to do a 24 hour fast or a 48 hour fast, or even a three day fast. The times of the month for me that it seems like it's the easiest are day five of my period. And then days like 15 to say 21 for me, that just seems like it is. Could you talk a little bit about why that would be? Or if you feel like there's other times where you feel like these are the best days that you could do an extended fast because of your hormones, if they were, if they were all in alignment, that's another key. Sure. Yes. And, um, and, and are we using fasting as an interventional tool to help with supporting where, where we're wanting to adjust the hormones? Um, I'll say that what you're saying makes a lot of sense in terms of what we know with the estrogen kind of coming up and then down in that, in that first part of the cycle. So your body's built up all the estrogen that, that it needs, um, and, and is transitioning down in that, uh, day five to 10 range. Um, so you you have a good amount of stores there hormonal wise and your and your body isn't expecting a high progesterone yet um so what you're working from is really good hormonal reserves relative to what your body needs and um and we know how good uh fasting and whether that's intermittent fasting or sh- shortish prolonged like between 1 and 3 days uh, is for helping the interplay between insulin resistance if that's present and estrogen um, very close interaction there. So, so your timing makes a lot of sense there. And then uh, later on in the cycle, that's um, that's when the progesterone is coming up. And then 21 to 28 days uh, is when is when that we're kind of on the the downslope of the of the roller coaster of the progesterone, so to speak. So, we're, we've kind of built built everything up and and can kind of live off of that for a while, <laughs> in a, in a matter of speaking. Hey guys, I wanted to tell you I'm offering a free weight loss virtual Bible study. Now is the perfect time to focus on understanding true hunger and fullness and learn what the Bible has to say about it. All you have to do is go to ChantelRayway.com slash Bible study. After you sign up, you'll receive a six week Bible study video that you can watch on your own or you can get a small group of people and do it together. That's ChantelRayway.com slash Bible study for your free six week Bible study course. So is that those are the right times that you should fast? Like those are the ones, I mean, I just know when it is the easiest for me, but does that match what you would say the hormones are doing? 
yes, yes. And the, and the other end of that is that I would say that for a lot of women, they're noticing a difficulty if they're wanting to trying to fast like right during their period and then also right before. And it's just that that our sort of our internal environment is more sensitive to what's going on with the estrogen when when the period is actually happening and then what's going on with the progesterone right before the next one happens. So one of the things that I get a lot of questions on, and I think it's because I said it one time in my podcast, so people have heard me before. And one of the things that I'm seeing is a lot of people are getting massive headaches the first day that they start their period, and then the last day they're ending their period. One thing that I've done is I've just started taking progesterone cream like on day 15, Mm -hmm. and that seems to help um, with that. But can you talk about number one, why are you getting those headaches that day before? I mean, I would get, it hasn't happened in a while, but I would get to the point, I would have such a bad headache that first day of my period where I was right about to, that I would throw up. I I would get a migraine headache to the point that I would throw up because I was that sick and it hasn't happened in a while, but could you talk about the, that for people who are suffering that? Yeah. So, so there can be the full spectrum from a little, what we'd call tension headache, like, oh, this is bothersome. Um, I need to limit, you know, screen time or, or something like that all the way to a full migraine, light sensitivity, or a got to close myself up in a dark room. Women can kind of experience anywhere along the spectrum and that if it is associated with, with the menstrual cycle, with hormone fluctuations, I would say like right um, within like one to three days prior to the period into it, maybe one to three days, that's, that's very common. Um, and the, the reason for that kind of what's going on is that I would be suspicious just based on the many women that I'm seeing with this and, and then matching up to what their uh, hormone results looked like is that there was a, perhaps a, how do I say, a, a, a propensity towards the estrogen excess or a lack of the progesterone. That's, that's the most common ratio that I see there. And as, as we all know, going, going through menstrual periods, not every single one is the same. So that, so that imbalance, that, that ratio, that dominance, maybe it's, maybe it's pretty balanced some cycles and, and thus a woman would not be maybe experiencing much or any headaches and then other others are, are much more extreme. Um, I, I take a look at seeing, I guess what my, I would be looking towards is seeing that the estrogen isn't too high and seeing that the progesterone isn't too low and on a physiologic kind of anatomic basis that unbalanced, I guess the, the progesterone and the estrogen exist in this nice balance. They counter each other. And when that, that teeter-totter is skewed and there's a little bit excess estrogen activity, it is more um, uh, constricting to our blood vessels, such as the small blood vessels in our head. Mm. Um, Let's talk about, uh, this question is from Amy Mays, and she asks, why does menopause cause weight gain? That is a really good question. And I love digging <laughs> down into the rabbit hole of what's going on with our hormones. And the, the biggest interplay that I see with that is going back to something I touched on really briefly, which is 
insulin, what's going on with insulin and what's going on with estrogen. So, um, so speaking a little bit about insulin, it's the hormone that regulates our blood sugar. It does a lot of other metabolic activities in our body. And uh, we all exist. This is a, another type of spectrum on, on a spectrum of insulin sensitivity to insulin resistance. And that uh, there, there's a strong component of our just genetic predisposition there, kind of looking at family history, how, how insulin sensitive or resistant someone is. And then as we all go through time without, without any careful attention towards, uh, towards correcting or addressing or reversing this, we will all become a little bit more insulin resistant over time. And that, um, that trajectory is really accelerated as the estrogen drops off through, through the, the perimenopause and, and at that menopausal shift. For, for all women, the estrogen drops. For some, it's moderate. And for some, they're left with like 1% of what they had previously. So, um, so the, the presence of that estrogen earlier in life can, uh, for those who are predisposed to insulin resistance, keep that in check. And then it's like that, that safeguard <laughs> goes on retirement and, and uh, lets, lets the insulin resistance sort of run wild. And, um, and, and that creates sort of this metabolic environment for someone to be way sensitive to their carbohydrates that, that they're taking in dietarily that they weren't previously. And for these women, it seems like whatever they're doing, they're gaining weight. They're, they're eating while they're gaining weight. They, they are continuing to exercise and they're gaining weight. And that's because of this metabolic change in the background. Okay. This next one is from Barbara Morgan. And she says, I'm interested in learning about how intermittent fasting might impact already elevated cortisol levels. I know everyone's different, but I don't know if intermittent fasting has made my cortisol levels worse. I don't think so, but I'm doing a lot of things to lower it. But I've listened to some different podcasts and they've said that actually intermittent fasting can exasperate it. But I know that intermittent fasting can be a stress on the body, but I also don't want to affect my cortisol levels. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, that, that's a great question because I think some people could take it in, could take intermittent fasting and prolonged fasting into a place where it is stressful on them. And I think this all just necessitates a lot of kind of self-care and checking in. And it sounds like, uh, this, this lady said she is, uh, aware of her stress kind of self-care, taking good care of herself. And, um, and I would say, how, how does it feel? How, how does the intermittent fasting feel? If that's often where someone is starting before they're going into the more prolonged fasting, are they feeling good? Are they feeling, uh, very challenged and sort of fighting against something, um, I would say for, for a lot of patients that I've heard when they're, when they're getting into intermittent fasting, they, they like it. It's actually a stress reliever. They're like, great. I didn't realize I don't have to plan for as many meals and, and I, and I feel good and I don't feel hungry and, and I'm sleeping well. Okay. I would, I would say for those people and yeah, I've run, I've run their, their hormones on those, on those, uh, urine hormone panels. They're checking adrenal hormones as well as the, the sex hormones, the estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. So, so we can see how those are changing, but, um, but I would say kind of just check in with yourself. So what I was explaining as someone that I wouldn't expect that, that they're 
they're putting a stress on their body. They're, they're elevating their cortisol um, versus if someone is sort of going zero to 60 and doing a pretty radical change overnight, noticing um, that they are shaky, having trouble sleeping, just uh, sleeping, just feeling stressed out. Then, then I would say, kind of just take a close look at that and see if you can't take smaller steps that, that feel a little bit more comfortable um, because yeah, I think someone can, can take it too extreme too fast and that, and that could be potentially stressful. Uh, but for a lot of people, I don't, I don't see it that way. Hey guys, one of the things that will take your weight loss to the next level is coaching. You can either work one-on-one -on -one with me or one of our certified private coaches. If you'd like, you can schedule your free call. It's a 10 minute strategy call just to see if coaching is gonna really take you to the next level. Don't just take my word for it. Listen to this recent review, a happy coaching client sent in. Thanks so much for your help and guidance. I never could have done it without you. The other thing is listening to the audiobook. Listening to the audiobook and getting the video course that I've done, people are seeing dramatic results. If you just listen to the audiobook 30 minutes a day, over and over and over again, and get the video course, go to ChantelRayway.com and check out the video course. You won't be sorry you did. Okay, this next question we've kind of talked about a little bit, but we can expand on it. This question is from Shana Carlson. She said, my doctor says that women should fast in certain phases only and that she recommends that they fast during the follicular phases only. She said that they shouldn't phase during, fast during the ovulation and menses as our bodies don't need additional stressors when they're trying to make hormones. What do you say? Uh, parts of that I can understand parts. I would, I would like to, to address. Um, so we are, we are all making hormones all the time. <laughs> Every day we're making hormones. Um, so whenever you're fasting your that day, you're also going to be invariably making hormones of, of one sort or another. Um, the, the, the menses itself does occur during the, the follicular phase. Um, well, let's so explain the phases for yes, someone who's yes. to this and they're new, like let, let's Great. just bring it down more simple and let's go over the, the different phases and then where you recommend. For okay. So everyone like take out your phones where you're tracking your period and your period app. Like mo most women are doing that now, like open it up and take a look at when your period last started, not ended, but started. And we're going to call that day one. Every time you start your period, we're going to call that day one. Um, so day one through roughly day 14. So that the week of the period, and let's say you have a period for three or five or seven days, whatever it is. So, so that week plus the following week, that's what we call the follicular phase. Um, and then about day 15 is uh, through 28. If you have a 28-day cycle, we call that the luteal phase. As we know, all women are just a little bit different with slightly shorter or longer uh, phases, but, but roughly for a 28-day cycle, we break it in half and call the, the week of the period and the next week the follicular phase, and then the last two weeks the luteal phase. Um, and, and to tie that into when someone should or should not fast, 
Um, like, like we've said, maybe the, the slightly more extended into the one to three day fasting, I would say that generally women can feel pretty good and like they're tolerating it, like, like it's overall a benefit to them in that week after their period. And that, uh, some women are definitely feeling pretty sensitive. Like they're just not feeling like they can tolerate it. Like they're having a beneficial, uh, experience potentially in that luteal phase, um, but that's really more for the extended. I would say for intermittent fasting, I generally don't see a strong, um, a, I guess, a strong sensitivity to to it. Kind of through through the cycle, I, I see generally that women tolerate pretty well. Um, just having like a an eighteen six sort of a intermittent fasting, no no matter where they are in their cycle. So. Just break it down by day, go to day one to days, like, I guess, do you base it on most women having a period for what, four days, five days or? Uh, I would say three to five is pretty, is pretty typical, pretty normal, um, up to seven, that's getting a little bit long. And then if it's more than seven, then, then we're definitely, um, thinking like some, there's some sort of a hormonal imbalance that just isn't cutting that that period off at the at the time that it should. So if we start cuz if you say the menstrual phase, right? So that's day 1. Mm-hmm. And then you're saying so day 1 to day 5 is considered the menstrual phase. Is yep. that kind of what you're saying? Okay, then it goes into the follicular phase, right? Uh the the, the menstrual period actually is part of the follicular phase. Okay, so you put the menstrual phase and mm-hmm. the follicular phase together. Yeah, yeah. And then you say, okay, then what days are you considering the ovulation phase? Well, on on a technical level, that's when that's when a woman ovulates, and um, and that and that can vary a little bit. Um, I would say day ten to fourteen ish. Some women have symptoms, and they and they actually can kind of perceive uh, when when they're ovulating. Maybe it's a little bit of pinchy, cramping down down in the lower abdominal area on the left or the right. Um, uh, another, another thing, another symptom that some women notice, especially if they're um, trying to conceive and, and are really focusing on their, um, their ovulation cycle is what we call cervical mucus change. So that's just vaginal discharge changing in the, its consistency. A lot of women just have no idea. They don't, they don't feel anything. They don't notice anything. Maybe their app pops something up saying, saying, you know, you're ovulating today. Uh, but yeah, that's, uh, around, around days, uh, t- 10 to 14 ish. And then the luteal phase is then considered day 14 until day 28. Yeah. I would say like 15 to 28, just so we're having kind of a clean two week and two weeks, um, phases there. And that's why I don't, I don't feel like you can talk about, I don't feel like you can talk about when to fast based on whether it's your luteal phase, follicular, like it has to be based on the days. Because if you think about it, if the luteal phase is considered day 14 to day 28, well, I do great fasting from day 15 to say day 21, but then starting at day 21, I don't do good fasting. So if all of those days are included in the luteal phase, you can't talk about it as a phase. You have to talk about it as D 
days instead of the phases. Mm-hmm. Does that, yeah. Do you agree with that? And I think you're getting to something even kind of below that, which is like the, the phases is just sort of our, our way of differentiating like first half versus second half of the cycle. But each week there, there's its own, there, there's differences in, um, in what our bodies are doing just generally in terms of building up uterine lining and having a period, but, but also the, the hormones underlying that. So like early and late follicular, early and late luteal, there's, there's different, um, there, there, there's big hormonal shifts happening. So let's talk about somebody who is in the menopause stage. So for them, does it matter when they are going to fast? I, I don't really see any, any, um, changes how I, how I explain this, because this is just how, what I've seen, uh, working with so many women over time is that, so during the years that we have our periods, there's hormonal shifts. And then during the, the, the perimenopause, like those hormones are still cycling and they're going down. And in that menopause, postmenopausal state, um, there still can be a little bit of shifts there, especially in, I would say, like early, early postmenopause. So maybe the period stopped a year and a half, two years ago. Some women are still noticing a little bit of cyclic hormonal response, maybe a, a little bit of breast tenderness, a little bit of moodiness that seems to come and go on a monthly-ish uh, cycle there. And, um, but, but generally speaking, as far as it comes to, uh, tolerance and benefits of fasting, whether that's intermittent fasting or more prolonged fasting, I, I don't, um, I don't see the, the big, um, I would say swings in, in it that, that, that I do see for, for women, uh, earlier in life. So let's talk about estrogen dominance for just a second. I feel like that's kind of the new buzzword around town. And what are some of the causes of estrogen dominance and what are things you can do to get rid of it? Great. Okay. Well, that, how much time do you have? That's a big topic. <laughs> uh, where does it come from? Well, we do know that certain uh, estrogen dominant conditions are familial. So part of that may be just someone's family history, their genes. Um, we uh, certainly know there's a lot of environmental impacts on our own hormones. And unfortunately, that just seems like something we have to be more and more careful about over the years. Uh, so I would say like a, a big, um, a big thing is plastic compounds and other, what we call xenoestrogens. So these are compounds that are created for whatever sort of, um, manufacturing reason and that our interaction with them has a, has an impact on our hormones. Um, plastics is, is a big one. There's a lot of different compounds in plastics that can influence what our, our estrogens are doing in our body. And it's called xenoestrogens because the xeno means sort of outside, outside of our body. And, um, and having a xenoestrogenic, uh, action means that it's influencing our actual hormone receptors, even though it's not true, pure estrogens, our body makes it, it's sort of kind of mucking up the picture there. Um, so, so being aware of what compounds are storing our food, are in our laundry detergents, um, topicals, makeup, kind of any, any of those can have compounds that can be estrogenic. Uh, I like the Environmental Working Group's website for, for checking your own um, just 
detergents and home care items and really anything like that. And, and they have a huge directory where they can say like, what, what, what are in these and do they have any uh, known interactions to our health? Um, just because they create new and different kinds of stabilizers and other things. So every, every single year, it seems like there's new things to watch out for uh, on that end. And, and I'm just talking about that because, because it, it sort of adds to the issue. If someone already has a slight estrogenic imbalance, a little bit more estrogen dominance, those, those kind of factors are going to be pushing it even, even further. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, so that's kind of too much too much estrogen activity coming in. Uh, the other the other element is, are the estrogen that we want that our body is trying to get out actually getting out? And so um, differences in liver processing and kind of packaging up all those hormones and getting them into the intestines and getting them out of the body. Uh, for 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 some people, that's more of a compromise. And, um, and certainly if there's digestive issues, sluggish digestion, constipation, th those kind of things, like those, those hormone packages that our body is trying to get out just uh, won't or, or won't as, as readily, won't as quickly. And those can actually, those packages can then open back up and, and recirculate in our body. What is your thoughts on using DIM? I have on my on ChantelRayWay.com and things I love. I have a, a supplement called DIM on there. Mm -hmm. What is your thoughts on using DIM to help with estrogen dominance? I like it because it is um, just helping support how, how our hormones are, are breaking down. So it's sort of like it's just encouraging that less uh, inflammatory estrogenic activity in sort of, I think, like a nice, gentle, supportive way. It's not um, blocking anything. It's not forcing our body to do anything. And it's not even hormone containing. So it's just sort of encouraging like, hey, estrogen dominance, would you like to uh, get broken down in a, in a less problematic way? And then, and then so the body can kind of take care of it and eliminate it. Let's talk about the effect of your hormones on your joints. So I have in my right wrist, just randomly, my right wrist, like I, it hurts to the point, like I can't, like this side, I can bend it, this side I can't. So I just, I can't do push-ups. I can't do anything that kind of pushes that like that. And it's just so random. Like I didn't really do anything to hurt it. Do you feel like hormones have a play in joints? And have you seen women just with random joint issues that are kind of unexplained? They didn't do anything, they didn't injure it in any way or anything like that? Uh, yes, 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 and yes. <laughs> um, so of course there can be other reasons for a chronic joint lingering pain or achiness or something like that. Um, there, there's other inflammatory or, or nutrient deficiencies. There, there's certainly other things that can be going on, but yes, specifically to hormones, I will tell you, um, that I've seen women that have, they can be migrating joint aches and pains. It can be in one spot. It can be sort of in one spot and then slowly, and now here and now the hip and now the shoulder, like it just seems, seems to be growing. And um, without any other kind of intervention, because maybe that was in the background and they mentioned it, but it wasn't a, a top priority. We were focusing on something else hormonally related, their, their fatigue, their hair falling out, their low sex drive, whatever it was. We were focusing on hormones, identified a hormone deficiency, helped, helped boost that activity, and then the joint pain went away. 
So I've seen that time and time again. And I will tell you the, the top three hormones that I've seen, like we treated a hormone deficiency and their joints got better is thyroid, testosterone, and estrogen. Awesome. Anything else that you can think of that you've seen kind of the biggest change with people of how they feel? So you say, you know, people come see me and their hormones are imbalanced. This is kind of the protocol we do, and this is how we help them to feel better. Gosh, yeah. I mean, I, I love I love working through this process. I love investigating it um, because we're all different. So so for for one person, it may be getting getting just a joint biomechanically, getting it moving, um, re- replacing a nutritional deficiency, um, adding in some anti-inflammatory nutrients. But I see it really powerful. Uh, the, the interplay there between getting someone's body in an optimal state and getting their hormones in an optimal state, because there really is this feedback loop uh, between our hormones and our joints and our muscles. And I am, I'm talking to patients all the time who are coming to me, quote unquote, just for hormones. And, and I say, and how are you moving? Are you moving? What, what is your activity like? And really encouraging them to, to kind of step into that to, to get, get and stay strong, as I'm often uh, saying, because starting from a place of, of very little muscle mass, very, very little strength, and then building up the, those muscle fibers, building up uh, that muscle integrity kind of completes the loop to then balance out our own hormones, estrogen, testosterone, so, so that we can have a really nice positive snowball effect instead of a negative snowball effect of things feeling weak and tired and joints hurting and, and kind of the, the, the typical aging process. We can intervene there and have everything working in our favor instead of against us. I know one more thing I want to talk to you about is regenerative injection therapies. I know there's two primary types and I'd like for you to talk about those and what kind of experience you've had with that. And where do you see the, like when people come to you, you know, how many times do you have to do it? And what are some of the things that you've seen treated the best? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So this is another passion of mine because it kind of helped me put in my last missing piece of my own knee surgery and injury and lingering issues with recovery. Um, So with regenerative injection therapies, the idea behind that is the injections are going specifically to the site of the chronic joint pain, injury, instability, degenerative changes there. Um, and and the, the injection is really telling the body, sort of tricking it pretty much to, to say, this is actually a new fresh injury. So come on in immune system healing processes that we naturally have within us and, and reheal this tissue. And yeah, the, the two uh, main types, the ones that I do are prolotherapy and platelet-rich plasma injections or PRP. And so both of those exist on a spectrum of they're, they're doing that's what we call stem cell migration signal, which is that, um, that sort of uh, chemical signal to, to tell the body uh, it's recreating the, the communication saying this, this is a new injury, come on and heal this area. And um, I see a lot of different types of osteoarthritis or, or degenerative joint disease. So in knees, hips, low back, shoulders, um, those respond really well. Uh, sports, sports injuries, lingering um, issues from like a car wreck, um, 
I, I would say that prolotherapy is the, the predominant one that I'm doing. And, it, and it's very uh, great for just kind of supporting ligament and connective tissue recovery in that area. And then sometimes I'm going in later with the PRP, the platelet-rich plasma injections, just to address a specific um, partial tear, for example. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being with us today. Tell listeners where they can find you and where they can follow you. Sure. So I am on social media, Facebook and Instagram. And uh, on both of those, it's Dr. Angela Cortal. Uh, so it's DR and then Angela Cortal. And my website is uh, drcortal.com, D-R-C-O-R-T-A-L.com. And if you are a ebook or, or paperback type of reader, if you'd like to, to read more on this, uh, my, my new book is up on Amazon. So you can search my name or the, the book name of Younger Joints today and find me on there as well. Awesome. Well, if you have a question, just like we answered today, we'd love to answer your questions. Email us at questions at chantelrayway.com. Stay tuned and we'll see you in just a little bit. Bye-bye for now. Hey guys, thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, it would mean the world to us for you to leave a review on iTunes to get this podcast out to others that may have the same questions that you do. And as always, if you have a question that you want answered, email those to questions at chantelrayway.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.